Welcome to the Insecurity Project Podcast. Most people think the best you can do with insecurity is mask it, manage it, or medicate. I'm convinced this is a problem that can be solved for good, and that's what this show is all about. Join me for weekly 10-minute Tuesday episodes, live coaching demonstrations, and world-class interviews on the subject of overcoming insecurity. Now on to today's show. Hello friends, thanks for tuning in again to another episode of 10 Minute Tuesday or more likely to be 15 to 17 Minute Tuesday but that's okay, it's still not a very long amount of time and I'm still non-negotiable about not not adding to the noise so uh, that's okay, if, if you feel like I'm talking too long, look you'll let me know, you'll just tune out I'm sure so uh, until that happens I'll just continue stretching the limits of 10 minutes to see how much goodness I can fit into one episode let me start today's episode by just summing up a, a beautiful trip to Noosa, where I combined working with some wonderful clients I've got uh, who happen to have kids the same age as mine uh, with a family holiday with my own family and being able to combine work and play. So let me sum up what that was like by reading this beautiful quote from James A. Michener. The master in the art of living makes little distinction between his work and his play, his labor and his leisure, his mind and his body, his information and his recreation, his love and his religion. He hardly knows which is which. He simply pursues his vision of excellence at whatever he does, leaving others to decide whether he is working or playing. To him, he's always doing both. That's how I started the conversation with these two lovely people on Friday and so are you happy for that? Are you happy just to to know that at some point we'll have the right conversations, the meaningful conversations? Who knows whether they'll be 20-second conversations or two-hour conversations, when or where we have them, but we will have them, and uh, and we certainly did. And, uh, and, and get to enjoy one of the most beautiful parts of the world too. So on to today's episode, the no-pants dream. I don't know whether you've ever had such a dream or, or a dream that that troubles you, a dream that reoccurs. So uh, I dream vividly. Um, most mornings I wake up quite exhausted from the dreams that I endured throughout my sleep. I have a very active and fertile mind, I feel, and there's always so much going on when I'm asleep. Um, you know, So I'm, not, I'm saying this to let you know that I'm not looking to interpret every single dream that I have. I don't keep a dream journal. I'm not obsessing about making sense of every, every single thing that happens when my eyes are shut, cuddling the pillow. pillow. Um, however, when dreams are vivid, when they're colourful, uh, when I remember them without trying to remember them, and when I get the sense that I've had that dream before, before and, you know, two's a pattern. So um, whenever I see patterns in dreams, I'm just, it's got my attention. I, I run on the presupposition that, one of the easiest ways for my unconscious to grab my attention is when my conscious is at rest because then it's least likely to get in the way. So if my unconscious wanted to communicate something to me, um, it's going to either use pain or a dream. So uh, a dream I'd been having was that I'd head out the door feeling fully prepared, feeling ready, feeling like I was across whatever I was about to do, and I'd head out you know, full of beans, excited, and then somewhere along the process, I'd I'd realised that I didn't have any pants on, like not even just, you know, not not even underpants, and just the embarrassment of being exposed and going, like, 
why do I, why am I always the guy with no pants on and, and being ridiculed and others noticing and just the embarrassment, the feeling of embarrassment is the, is the residual feeling when I'd wake up from those dreams. And so uh, I was curious around what it meant and, and then I started thinking, well, what's happening in my world that I haven't processed properly? Because I like thinking about that presupposition too that I think it was Jung or Freud, one of those two cool cats who suggested that there is so much complexity going on in our world and too much complexity for our conscious mind to fully process. So the unresolved bits of complexity from our day get codified into metaphors and pictures and sounds and visuals and put into our dreams as a way of you know, reconciling the day and, and processing it. So I looked firstly about what was going into my world that perhaps could... Uh, you know, be an indicator of why I was having these dreams. I never read dream interpretations book in interpretation books. I never asked someone else to interpret my dreams. That would just seem ridiculous. My own unconscious is talking to me, so my best chance of interpreting my own dreams would be to ask myself. That seems very logical to me. So, um, the thing that stood out to me and my way into the interpretation was that there were two conferences that I'd been to, and. And both of them had given me a measure of pain. So I loved going to Nashville. You heard me tell the stories. Um, however, the experience of being in a room of 600 people, 600 speakers, by the way, ambitious to do more speaking, building their message, refining their craft, looking for open doors, looking to earn more money and get more opportunities, all competing with each other for a limited amount of opportunities and money in that space. So every person you meet is seeing you as perhaps an opportunity to get more of what they want. So they're more interested in you understanding them than they are in understanding you. So it was a tough space to meet people in, I found. And and the hustle, the selling, the trying to talk over, the my message is better than your message and I'm uh, I'm cooler than you, I'm smarter than you and I, I've been doing this longer than you, I earn more money than you. Like the competition... It was really icky. I did not enjoy that at all. Um, but I knew that I had to make the Nashville trip, uh, you know, a wise investment. I'd spent the money. I told Catherine it was worth my time, uh, unsurprisingly. She's like, oh, how convenient. You know, you believe that going to Nashville for an in- for a conference is going to be worthwhile. Oh, that's a surprise to me. I would never have guessed you'd imagine that would be worthwhile. So, yeah, that's kind of my pattern. I'm I'm likely to chase the fun adventures and then justify why that's a good use of time. But anyway, I was motivated to make sure that it got bang for buck. So I tried really, really hard to have a good attitude in the conference, um, but it, it didn't last very long at all. My like session one, if I'm ever at a conference, session one, you look, you should check out my my attitude. It's just peaking. I am so present. I'm so open. I am just ready and just expecting wonderful things. But then, you know, I listen, if you listen to the story I told about uh, getting to ask the question of the former US ambassador to the EU and them kind of playing silly buggers with me and pretending like they couldn't understand my accent just to get away from the difficult question I was posing, um, that that dampened my spirits, to be honest. And and then uh, lots of conversations afterwards where where my message is a little bit confronting, I want to talk about insecurity. I relate back to 
my business coach at the time who told me that I couldn't call myself the Insecurity Project because it was such a difficult name and a problematic name and people are insecure about being insecure and so I would repel people with my message. I would be a dangerous character because all I wanted to talk about was the most vulnerable, terrifying thing in the whole world. People are naturally motivated away from pain and I want to rub it in their faces. So the experience of trying to give people something they don't want is often my experience with the Insecurity Project. Um, and so it was heightened here in, in Nashville trying to make that work. Um, and then I was also at a, another conference last week with Liv Co, an investment conference where I was really understanding the world of venture capital and, and private equity and uh, how businesses work, how financial markets work, the, the macroeconomics, um, geopolitical challenges around what that's doing to our economy and all these things. And so very interesting and I had a good attitude again, session one, but my attitude petered off dramatically. Again, impacted by, uh, you know, I, there was a couple of sessions, one in particular that piqued my interest where uh, talking about um, Web Web 3.0 and then Web 5.0, terms that I'd never even heard of and I'm, I'm not sure whether you have or not. Um, but some of the future of the web-based technology and the blockchain and NFTs and all kinds of interesting things and how data will be used and who, who owns data and, um, you know, some extraordinary forecasts about where our world is heading. Uh, and, and so then the moderator asked a question, one of the experts, um, one, one lady, you know, what do you think is the biggest challenge to rolling this out effectively where it genuinely, you know, the whole idea of cryptocurrency was that it would be equitable, that people would ha would own, have ownership of their own value. They'd be able to, they wouldn't be, um, held captive by governments and and locked in poverty, they could they could be resourceful and find ways of recognizing their own value and have ownership of their own value. And so the question was, what what is the biggest challenge to seeing the full positive potential of cryptocurrency realized? And and she said, well, greed and fear. And my ears peaked. I'm like, of course, greed and fear. That's of course that's the problem. And that's the problem I've devoted my life to thinking about. So I need to go talk to this lady. And so as I do, I bowl up to her afterwards. I ask her for some time. We, we go away and I talk. And at the moment I open my mouth and start talking about insecurity, even though she's just said greed and fear are the things that are going to stand in the way, it's a weird conversation. It's a confronting conversation. It's a conversation she's not prepared to have. It's going to cost her too much to think about that in actual real time. Real time, And so I walk away discouraged and think it's hard. It's hard hustling. And then, and see, the interesting thing then, I think that's happened subconsciously, back to the dream, is that uh, I've run this, I've run this operation in my life where uh, I'll, 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 I'll explain this and then I'll, talk you through how I got to this just so you can try this on and please please the reason I'm telling you all this is just so you can try it on your own mind I don't want to be particularly prescriptive today I just want to tell you my own experience and you can make of it what you will so I was reviewing some old agreements around who I'd positioned myself to be and, and there were some things that I'd locked in some vows that I'd made in my life and they'd probably come from moments of embarrassment in the past, I think. I think the strongest vows are always made in moments of embarrassment where you have such a physical response to something that you promise yourself you will never, ever experience anything like that. So I think I'd cloaked 
protecting myself from embarrassment in some positive sounding agreements that I would be humble, I would be teachable, I would not be a know-all. I would not big note my own opinions. I would never present myself like I, I knew everything or I was right. I would take the position of a servant, not a servant, sorry, a student. I would assume that other people knew more than I did and I was there to learn. And so when the opportunity came for my idea to rub up against someone else's idea, their idea always won because my, I'm coming from a position of being a student and, and running experiments and being open to things that I don't know and being prepared to be wrong. And I, I kind of found that I'd prided myself on that, but there was some, there was some false humility on that and in, in that strategy, and it was creating some pain, and my unconscious was letting me know um, by this vivid dream. And so the, the, the point of the dream was my unconscious was telling me, Jamin, you keep showing up to the most important interactions in your life as the student. You defer to other people's wisdom still. You present yourself as, well, what if you're wrong? What if you haven't thought it through? You go home and you review your thing and you assume that others probably have got it right or, or your stuff's wrong or your stuff's weird or your stuff doesn't matter or your stuff is never going to work or you have positioned yourself under other people. Um, predominantly, you've, you've become the student, the eternal student, and so, therefore, your fear is when you show up and you interact with people, you're going to get embarrassed. You still have this residual assumption that at some point you're not going to be as prepared as you thought you were. Your ideas aren't as wonderful as you imagined that they are, and then you'll be found out. Now, here's an interesting thing about insecurity, right? Because you're like, hang on a minute, didn't you say you don't have insecurity? Uh, I've said that many a time, that I have solved insecurity at my current level of growth but as I've also said the moment you do that then you are now uh, without restriction and can move forward and and then occupy new levels of growth you can expand your experience of life you can take new territory and therefore find new uncertainty because you are exploring bigger places to play in and when you do that you experience new uncertainty and level up then you bang your head on new insecurities you kind of realize, oh, I know I was good enough for that last level, but am I good enough for this level? So you might have heard me talk about some of the the big growth that's happened in my world in the last six months in particular. Um, but, you know, working with this investment company and getting in some pretty extraordinary rooms with some amazing people, you know, just, just two weeks ago in the Maria office here, um, we've got a guy here who's personal friends with Bill Gates talking about consulting to the UN, solving some of the big world problems, talking about getting on a plane and flying to Japan, taking an interpreter and an emailer to solve Toyota's problems. And it takes if it takes eight months, well, that's how long he's there for. And then he flies home. So, some extraordinary operators, and these are the rooms I'm playing in. You know, getting to talk to AFL Players Association CEO about the insecurity problem within retiring athletes. Uh, and also... Pursuing options with Cricket Australia, leaning into the political space, reaching out to Nick Kyrgios. You know, there's, my world keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which is all that I've wanted. Uh, but as it does, then new insecurities and new levels of insecurity are exposed. And so this dream was highlighting, Jamin, there's an unresolved insecurity that's been hidden in a noble-sounding agreement around not being a know-it-all. 
priding yourself on being able to back down, being able to not enforce your opinion on anyone else. But it's leaving you feeling like you are in danger of being embarrassed. And so it's not going to work moving forward. So it was such a fascinating process of getting to the bottom of that and, and then and then thinking about whether that was true or not, whether I am just a student, whether my ideas aren't well thought through, whether I do need to defer to others' wisdom, whether I do need to constantly sell my ideas or force my ideas on others to be heard. And so, uh, you know, I love the idea of plumbing the depths of these insecurities by going back to the to the very origin of them and seeing if they are true, just seeing do these stories have any value uh, do they are they valid? Do they make any sense? And so, as I plumbed the depths of that narrative, I discovered no, that that's actually not true. I I do know what I'm talking about. Um, I, I just a quick aside that also helped me process this. I, I love the idea of working from the known to the unknown. You, you might have heard me talk about that before. That's episode um, 113. I think it is. Um, if it's not, I'm sure you'll be blessed by that episode and then you'll go find the known to the unknown one anyway. But the known to the unknown idea is that most people, when they're trying to solve problems, start with what they don't know and then they try and move to what they do know. But if you start with what you don't know, you end, you realise there's an awful lot you don't know and it's easy to get overwhelmed. When you start with what you do know, you radically reduce the field of possibilities for the, for your options moving forward. If you lock in the things you are most solid about, even if there's only three things you actually know that you know that you know, well, start there. You've got something solid to move from and you realize that if you actually know what you know what you know, there's only a couple of options you could take anyway. And so it was a chance for me to come back and and review, hey, Jamin, what do you know? What do you actually know? And by know, uh, it's to the best of my ability to to hold things tightly and loosely at the same time, to to the best of my understanding, what do I? What am I most certain about? Knowing that ultimately there could be better ways, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Because here's the interesting thing about being 43, right? That's a lot of years being in my own body. And by the way, I've been a pastor since I was, um, you know, I was a youth pastor when I was uh, 18. I was a senior pastor when I was 23. Uh, and you know, so the and a coach when I was thirty three. So I've been coaching for um, oh, I don't know thirty three, thirty one, early thirties. I feel like I've been coaching for twelve years. Those numbers don't add up somewhere. Maybe I've fudged the figures. But the point of what I'm saying is, I feel like I've been walking a straight line in terms of my desire to be useful to people, to be invited into their world, to facilitate meaningful change conversations since I was nineteen. That's a hell of a long time to be running in a straight line. And and the the point of what I heard myself say to myself was, hey, Jamin, now is not the season for any more experiments. You have done enough experiments. You have gathered enough data. Know what you know. Double down on what you know to be true. Stop seeking other people's advices. You do not need to read any more personal development books. You do not need to listen to any more personal development podcasts. You do not need to go and hustle and sell your message. You do not need to convince anyone of anything. You have done the work. Know what you know. You do have your pants on. You are not a student. You are not a boy. You are an adult. You are a man. You are a teacher. 
Go be a teacher. Be sure about what you know and bring that certainty. And your certainty will give others permission to be certain. There is a chance for a new agreement to be formed here about being certain and not needing to be this false, this have this false humility around not being a know-it-all. Double down on what I know. And so I thought, well, what do I know? And, and here are a few things that I know with every cell in my being. I know that insecurity is a global problem causing an extraordinary amount of suffering. And that problem is more than worthy of me devoting every amount of energy and time and money to that solution for the rest of my life. I know that. I know that if I do that, I will not be disappointed. I know that I have my best chance of making a meaningful contribution if I continue to do that. I know that. I don't need to run any more tests around that. I don't need any more experiments. I don't need anyone else's anyone else's judgment or opinion around. I know that that is true. Um, I I know that people suffer greatly for not knowing that there is a solution to this problem. I know it is a predictable problem. I know it is a solvable problem. I know what happens if you don't solve it. I know that lots of people have all kinds of different philosophies around a meaningful life, happiness, success, you know, therapy, beliefs, and you know, being a human. But I also know that it, that there's not a single person in the world who would not benefit from loving themselves deeply, from resolving narratives that they have set up in their own life and agreements and opinions they formed against themselves, where they have ended up misunderstanding who they really are and therefore not trusting their own nature and assuming the worst, having to manage themselves. So I know every single human, no matter what work they're doing, no matter what opinion, no matter what belief, no matter what message, would ultimately benefit from restoring the relationship with themselves and showing up in the world with nothing to prove and nothing to defend at their best where it matters most. I know that for every single person, let alone captains of industry, politicians, Influences people charged with solving the world's most important problems. I know that they need to be at their best. I know that insecurity undermines them. It, it causes them to act out of ego and ultimately creates decisions that are mad, that make no sense, that are irrational, and just uh, and they propagate madness in the world and, and increase suffering in the world. I know that. I know that I have greatly benefited from the seven essential practices for overcoming in my own insecurity in my own life. I know that I've benefited that. I know what happens when someone completely aligns themselves with these practices. I've watched what it's, what's, what it's done for me firsthand. I know that. No more experimenting. I don't need more data. I don't need another try to see, well, yeah, but is it? Are there any gaps in this? I know. And so as I double down on what I knew and, and form new agreements around being a teacher and not a student, showing up with certainty and locking that in. That night I had a, a, a beautifully powerful dream where I had such energy and focus and life inside me that I, I could not stay on the ground. As I, as I focused that energy inside me and channeled it, I, I rose off the floor and, and floated up toward the ceiling. And was in this this powerful position of being able to fly. I had that much energy and that much clarity and that much certainty, and and that lingered me. When I woke up, I felt so in tune and and so powerful, so, so much so that I could fly. 
I could ap- operate against the physical laws of gravity. Such was the power that I embodied off the back of knowing what I know. And the pants dream, the no pants dream, hasn't showed up since. That, to me, is evidence of a bunch of things that you might find useful. Listening to your dreams, communicating with your own unconscious. Um, maybe, maybe that's the message for you. Maybe it's around midlife, doubling down on what you know to be true. Or maybe there's something entirely different altogether that I don't need to prescribe or presume to tell. I'm going to leave it there. I hope that's been useful. I always enjoy these conversations. And I'll talk to you again soon. You've been listening to the Insecurity Project podcast. All you need to solve any problem is the proven framework and someone skillful enough to hold you in the space until it works. If this is your year to be insecurity free, jump on the insecurityproject.com and begin your journey to become unhindered by getting a free copy of the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity.